Focused on Abraham's weaknesses and his failures. Um, we've looked at his doubt and his dishonesty and the way in which Abraham so often takes off on detours as he's um, trying to work out what it is to be a person of faith, what it means to walk with God. You've got to remember that, um, as we said at the beginning of our series, for it, within the context in which Abraham was living, knowledge of the knowledge of God was 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 virtually extinct. In fact, um, had Abraham passed away or been unable to um, sire a child, then there would have been no knowledge of God on the earth. Um, so when we start to think and talk about Abraham, we have to remember that we're talking about a man who had little or no understanding. He was a moon worshipper. He had no understanding of, um, of a... Uh, monotheistic um, God. He was uh, polytheist, and that is, he uh, worshipped a pantheon or a, a diversity of, of gods. And uh, he was a moon worshipper from um, from Ur. His father's name, Tara, actually literally means moon. So there was kind of this. He was caught up in kind of stuff that was so far removed from that which God was wanting to lead him into. So we've got to remember the framework in which Abraham is learning what it is to follow the one true God. And um, hopefully by now it's clear that um, it wasn't Abraham's merit or performance behavior but it's actually his reliance upon the grace of God for which he is actually held up to us as um, our model of faith. Hopefully, as we've, we've reflected on his doubt and his dishonesty and the detours and, and, uh, in his life, hopefully, if nothing else, um, from the series, you'll understand that the basis on which God has always dealt with humanity and the basis on which we, any of us can be in right standing with God is not on our performance, but it's upon the grace and the kindness of God. And, and Abraham simply took hold of that truth and he held onto it in the midst of all of these um, various uh, expressions of, um, of doubt and what have you, and he held onto that. And it was that which I believe is the basis on which he is held up to us and esteemed as the model by which we are to duplicate our lives. And as of today, we're going to spend more time looking at the, the more positive attributes of, uh, of Abraham, however, because he's not just this um, uh, kind of person who just fails at every point. There are actually some really positive attributes within Abraham's life, and we're going to uh, look at some of those uh, strengths this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we'll start at Genesis chapter, chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we'll pick out a few verses and we'll jump into chapter 13 and then um, we'll kind of have a look at this. Um, Genesis 12 verses 6 and 9. So this is after God has initially come to Abraham 
and unveiled his plan of God's unveiled his plan of blessing uh, for Abraham. It's given him promises, and it says. Verse 6, Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, "Um, To your offspring I will give this land. And in response to the voice of God that's come again to Abraham, it says that he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then if we just uh, move down to uh, chapter um, 13 and verses 1 and 4, it says, So Abraham went up, up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. And Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And from the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier, where he had first built an altar. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. And then in uh, verses 14 to 18, it says, The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land um, that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. So here again is God reiterating his promise to Abraham and in response to the voice of God again, it says, So Abraham moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. And so we can just um, see in these uh, few verses that, that, um, that the person of faith which Abraham was, who trusts and depends upon God's grace, is actually characterized by a life of worship. That in these uh, events um, that I've just uh, highlighted, these verses I've just highlighted to you, that we see Abraham in response to God coming to him. He hears the voice of God. He receives uh, 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 promises from God. He encounters God's kindness and he sees demonstrations of God's, um, of God's blessing and, and provision. And as he has these encounters with God, he responds by building altars and worshipping God. And um, it's more than likely that the altars that, um, that, that Abraham uh, built was just, he would collect some stones, some rocks, and he would just uh, kind of create a bit of a, bit of a mound. And um, it was just something there that was to act as a mark or to signify uh, as a, a reminder of God's uh, activity on his behalf. That there were these encounters with God that then led Abraham to respond by just gathering some stones and marking that event, that occasion, and saying, God has come and has interacted with me and I need to signify that, I need to remember that, I need to worship in response to what God has done. And so what Abraham did is God intervenes in his life at various occasions. He creates places of worship. What he does is he actually presses the pause button to acknowledge who God is and what God has done for him. 
One of my favorite authors at, at this moment is a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. And um, N.T. Wright makes this statement. He says, When we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who he is or what he has done. And so worship is, is um, the, the response, our response to who God is and what God has done on our behalf. It's, it's pressing the pause button for us to acknowledge God's intervention in our lives, to acknowledge the voice of God has come to us, or to acknowledge that God has somehow blessed us or provided for us, to acknowledge that somehow God is at work and active in our lives. And the Bible um, records Abraham constructing four uh, or, or five altars in four places. And what we're going to do is just quickly look at these occasions to see what we can learn about worship from Abraham's life. So the first thing is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, which is, the, as I said earlier, the first mention of Abraham building an altar. And he does that at a place called Shechem. Names in the Bible are really important. And the word, or the name Shechem means um, shoulders. And um, shoulders throughout Scripture are synonymous with carrying responsibility or to be bearing burdens. So it's carry, the, the word Shechem carries with it this sense of um, bearing burdens or having some level of responsibility. So for example, um, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27, it says, In that day, their burden will be lifted from your shoulders, their yoke from uh, your, your neck. As we look at the life of Abraham, um, God has shifted Abraham from this place of safety and security in his homeland in Mesopotamia. He was living in a highly urbanized uh, setting. He was living in a city called Ur. And, um, you know, there are uh, reports that it was quite a wealthy uh, environment, uh, quite a wealthy place and, and relatively adva- uh, relatively advanced society. And God calls Abraham to leave the safety and the security of life in an urban environment and calls him to go to somewhere like Adelaide. It's the equivalent of leaving Melbourne and going to Adelaide. He's called to live a semi-nomadic existence. And we don't know what Abraham, what sort of line of work he was involved in, but it's unlikely that he was a shepherd which is what he became as a result of the call of God coming into his life. Um, And so here we find Abraham, who by now is quite an old man, and he's wandering around uh, the desert place with uh, flocks and herds who depend upon upon pasture and upon upon water. And he's living as a foreigner in in this strange land that he knows very little about, except that it's occupied by some very hostile and aggressive people. And God calls him into this environment and 
um, we need to understand that the life of faith is not and never has been and never will be a, a sort of a passport into a life that's free from pressure or problems. I don't know where we ever got this idea from that to become a Christian, to align ourselves with, with, with Jesus is a... a, a, a an entry into a life that is problem-free, that is pressure-free, that has no challenges. It's all just uh, prosperity and blessing until we finally get to heaven. I don't know where that came from, but it's not in the Bible. We got it from somewhere, but it, we didn't get it from, from, from Scripture. And so what we see is in the midst of this pressurized environment in which Abraham is led into is that worship is the place where Abraham cast off the cares and the concerns and the anxieties of life. It's that place where he came and he offloaded um, the burdens and the responsibilities that he was no doubt feeling and felt under at that time. And he simply trusted God. God said to him, um, in, uh, it was in verse, verse uh, 7, I think it is, isn't it? Yes, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, that sounds great, except problem number one, um, Abraham's wife, Sarai, is unable to, to conceive. She's barren. She's unable to, to um, reproduce. That's, that's problem number one, a barren wife. And yet God is talking to him about offspring, about having children. Problem number two, God says to him, um, you know, to you and your offspring, um, I will uh, give you this land. Well, the reality is that land didn't belong to Abraham. The Canaanites had staked a claim. That, that was their land. That was their property. And they weren't going to give that up without a fight. They were a hostile, aggressive people. And so God comes and gives them this great promise. But in the midst of the promise is the, the problem of a barren wife and the pro- problem of the Canaanites who saw that land as very much theirs. And he's a minority living in a place where there is an established people. He's a, he's a, he's a foreigner in a, in a strange land. And I'm sure that he could have tried to figure out how this promise was going to come to pass. But what Abraham did is in that place of worship, he stopped trying to figure out how God was going to bring the promise to pass. And so when we come to worship, worship is where we create a space or a place in our place. <laughs> it's a kind of, that's a combination of a place and a, and a time, a place. Um, we create a place, a time, a moment in our lives where we just stop worrying Stop trying to figure it all out. How, how is all of this stuff that we sense God has called us into and called us to do or called us to be, we stop trying to figure it all out and we go, God, this is too big for me. 
And I come to acknowledge my trust and my confidence in your faithfulness to make all of this make sense in your time and in your way. And so when we come to worship, what we do is we just build an altar, not physically, but we create a time and a space in which we go, God, don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust you to do it. And that's the attitude, the first attitude we see in Abraham as he lives out this life of worship. The second place that um, we find um, Abraham worshipping at is a place called Bethel, which means house of God. And um, it's actually just in the next couple of verses in, uh, in chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. It says, From there Abraham went on, on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And so we can see that Abraham is cultivating an attitude of worship. But what's really interesting is um, we looked last week at, at one of Abraham's really doozies of a failures, you know, where, where he um, lies about, um, about who Sarai is, says that she's my sister, which is a half-truth, really was his wife. And so all he's interested in is self-protecting himself. So he's gone from this place of worship, of, of constructing a, a, an altar, and yet he has this lapse. And what happens is in, in chapter 13, verses 1 to 4, it says, So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. And Abraham became very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And from the Negev he went, uh, went, up, went from place to place, and he came to Bethel. In other words, he's retracing his steps. He was in Bethel, he was worshipping God and everything was fine. But then he has this lapse where he finds himself in Egypt and um, so basically renouncing his wife and all that sort of stuff. And he's just lost the plot. And so he kind of wanders around for a while and he returns back to the place where he once worshipped. He retraces his, it's actually a path of repentance He's going to that place where he, he last met with, met with God and he constructs another altar. And I reckon, as I've been looking at the life of Abraham, the conclusion that I've come to about Abraham is that, that the thing that God just loved about Abraham is the fact that despite his failure... His greatest attribute was his ability to bounce back and was to return because he understood that God was kind, that God was gracious, that God was merciful. He understood that despite his failure, he could go back to Bethel and meet with God again, that his failure was not prohibitive or a barrier between him reconnecting and re-engaging with God. And if there's one thing I think that God just loved about Abraham and that we can learn from is that when we blow it, like we all do, that is not a barrier between us re-engaging or reconnecting with God. 
that we understand that God's mercy and God's kindness and God's grace is far greater than our failures. And there was something within Abraham that just said, you know what, I've blown it again. What an idiot. But let me find some stones. Let me create a place where once again I just come and I worship God. And so... For us, there's this beautiful scripture in, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Probably familiar with it, but it says, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, in view of God's, what? In view of God's mercy. I urge you, therefore, in view of what? Of God's mercy. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your spiritual act of worship. So Paul is saying in the light of, in view of, in the light of, in in the context of God's mercy, worship. And that's what Abraham did. Abraham worshipped in the light of or in the context of God's mercy. third um, thing that we see is that Abraham built an altar in a place and worshipped a place called Hebron. And, um, uh, chapter 13, verse 18 says, so Abraham moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. And the word Hebron means alliance, confederacy, um, or, or partnership. And what we've been saying as we've been talking about the life of Abraham, we've been talking about this covenant that God has initiated with, with Abraham. And we said that the core, the core of what it means to be in covenant relationship with God is this, is that if you were to distill what it means to be in, in covenant with God, it means this, that God and us are one. There is this union or this inseparable connection that has been forged for all eternity. And so when we come to worship in, if you like, in our, in our figurative Hebron, we, we worship from that place of understanding and knowing and seeing that God is not at a distance from us. But God has come close. God has come near. In fact, God is so near that we are now in this place where we are intrinsically and for all eternity linked together with him. That we're not, we're not worshipping a distant God. We're worshipping a God who has come to us, forged covenant through the blood of his son and made us one together with him that we are in a, in a partnership relationship, we're in an, an alliance, we're, we are in a confederacy together with God. And then the fourth and final mention of worship in Abraham's life is found in Genesis chapter 22, and if you'd like to turn there with me. This is towards the end of Abraham's life. He's, um, he's been work, walking with God now for, for, for decades, and he's... It's finally starting to come together. It's almost like he served his apprenticeship and, and this is the moment of, of graduation for him. 
It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, um, here I am, he replied. Sorry, he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, which is this, the fourth place in which we find the altar being constructed. Sacrifice them there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his, uh, two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife and the two of them went on together. And Isaac spoke up and said to his father, uh, to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there. And arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and uh, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, uh, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The place on which Abraham constructed um, his final altar, or that final altar that we see in Scripture, is uh, on Mount Moriah, which is one of the most sought-after pieces of real estate in the planet. Many, many years later, it became the site on which Solomon built his temple. Uh, today, it is the place where um, uh, the Muslim world, it's actually owned by the, um, today it's that piece of real estate is owned by the uh, Muslim Supreme Council. But what we see in this momentous event and in the weeks ahead, we're going to spend some time going through um, this portion of scriptures because it's so complex and so layered and so uh, rich in um, things to draw from it. But just to say this, when Abraham constructed that altar to worship God. It was a place of sacrifice. Sacrifice in two forms. One, we see Abraham willing to lay down that which is most precious to him. But also on that altar, we see God making provision. God making 
or contributing or making a sacrifice available for Abraham. And the fourth thing about worship is this. Worship is something which we engage in in which we understand something of the sacrificial heart and nature of God. That as we come and worship, we understand that we have a God that gave the very best that God could give in order that we could live in partnership and relationship with him. And so worship has, in the life of Abraham, has, I guess, four really significant um, components. It's the creation of space uh, in our lives or spaces in our lives to stop trying to figure it out and working out how on earth God is going to do what God has said he's going to do. It's a place of trust. When we come to worship God, we just simply trust in him that he will fulfill his promise. And even though it seems insurmountable and we're weighed down with a whole bunch of cares and concerns, in its simplest form, worship begins by just trusting God and leaving it up to God to somehow work things out. Worship also involves us creating spaces and making places um, for God's mercy, that we worship and come close to God regardless of the fact, despite the fact that we failed. That we don't allow our failure to create a barrier between us living a life of connection and relationship with God. Thirdly, we have our Hebrons, our places of worship, those spaces that we create and build in which we view God as not someone who is distant and disconnected from us but we worship a God who has pledged himself to us and we are intrinsically and eternally linked with this God and nothing can separate that bond that has been caused we are in union that is what covenant is all about the fact that we live in this inseparable connection with God and as we come and worship, we also come to and build these spaces and places like Moriah in which we reflect on and remember the God who was sacrificed for us. And at times challenges us to give up things in response to his goodness and kindness. But... We can never get to that place unless we first understand that God has sacrificed for us, that God has given the best that God could possibly give. And so within those frameworks, within those constructs, that's how we see Abraham worshipping and that becomes something of the model and the framework for us and for our lives as a worshipping people, as a worshipping community. Individually and corporately, we build spaces, create spaces in our lives in which we do those four things. Do you want to... Anybody got any questions? Comments? 
Did I make sense? So the actual act of what was the actual physical act of worship? Um, it was involving the construction of an altar, which was a mound of stones, um, and one would assume the the general uh, the Hebrew words for worship. Um, the connotation is uh, one or a picture of bowing down, of prostrating oneself, of of lowering oneself. That would be, if you like, the um, the physic the physical um, thing. In the Mariah, it, yeah, alludes to, alludes to sacrifice. But in the other, uh, um, if you have a look at the first demonstration of sacrifice in the Bible, was the the story of Cain and Abel, in which um, Cain uh, brings, as they come to worship, Cain brings a uh, a sacrifice of uh, of blood. Abel brings a, um, a sacrifice of the work of his hands of um, of the crop. So there seems to be some sort of um, sacrificial component there. In the Hebrew, uh, sorry, the, the Greek word for worship uh, is a wonderful word. It, it's the word Greek word uh, uh, proskuneo, and it literally means um, to kiss, like a dog licking the master's hand. That's what it literally means. So it's this picture of of intimacy and of loyalty. And of um, you know having two dogs of our own, we, you know it give when whenever whenever our dogs come up and 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 you know want to lick, that's wor- to me that's worship. That's an acknowledgement. I'm master. I'm boss. I'm the provider. I'm the source. And they just want to let me know that they're very pleased that I'm there. I'm there. I'm there for them to uh, look after them. And that's, if you want a kind of simplistic understanding of worship, it's to uh, lick the master's hand, to acknowledge God as the source, the provider, the, the giver of good gifts. Thank you. We tend because the we call the promise to the Messiah who would come and our lives are so bound like bound up in the gift of Jesus and the sacrifice sacrifice of Christ. We tend to forget some of the things which you exposed to us in the last few weeks regarding Abraham and uh, his connection with God. Beautiful. Mm. 
foundation of the promise. Beautiful. Mm. Thank you. I take that as a huge compliment coming from somebody of uh, your age bracket. It's, it's wonderful. You're still learning. It's fantastic. Anybody else? Quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's such a radical story because he's living within a culture that um, doesn't understand the concept of a of one God. There is this pantheon of gods. Um, the existence of God was never in question. That was within the. It was the fact that there was one true God, and. N- Nothing else um, was such a radical thing for him to pursue and hold on to. When we say he was in isolation, there was quite a clan that he would have gathered around about him. So he was like this chieftain, uh, like he was a this semi-nomadic um, uh, Bedouin chief, I guess would be the best way. And so he had a, a, a fighting army. There was there wasn't a uh, you know it was like a a moving community because we'll look in a few weeks' time about. The household, his Abraham's household, and the household of Lot, in their conflict. So there was a reasonable, but they were pretty much surrounded by um, some fairly aggressive figures who were not all that pleased that their land was um, being um, invaded, etc. So. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Yes, Michael. <laughs> oh, we're not going to cover that because it's too hard. <laughs> we're, we're actually going to spend probably a couple of weeks looking at that. And uh, there's a, a couple of us spending some time even now thinking through that because um, there is a uh, you know there is a traditional view of what Abraham was doing then this um, I won't spoil the party because I've come across something that just really is so exciting that actually puts the whole question of sacrificing your son it's so big um, so if you can hold off yeah yeah it's a great question and it's a really difficult it's a really difficult question is you know you find christians sometimes doing the most weirdest things saying that god has told them to do something and they can refer to that particular story in genesis 22 which is within our from our worldview um it's cruel it's it's um yeah, it's wicked, that kind of stuff. But people use that story as verification for doing some of the uh, some 
hideous things as well. And so we really need to spend some time. Uh, and this is the thing about, about hopefully what we're starting to see is the complexity of life and of scripture and how that interacts. You know, even what we, you know, we looked at um, the story of uh, Abraham last week in that trip into Egypt. There were so many things that we could have pulled out that that scripture that are really complex and really difficult to come to terms with. And, um, you know, hopefully you're getting the sense that, um, yeah, that, that living the Christian life is, 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 chal- is, is challenging. It's not step one, step two, step three, step four, you know, and everything's going to be fine. It's muddy and it's challenging. And, and um, we can't just merely give pat answers to things. Um, so it's, Genesis 22 is really important. We've already started to talk about that. I think it's October 14th. Um, uh, Rod is going to come and share his perspective on that, and maybe one or two more of us might add some more layers after that. And, yeah, the rabbi that comes, like, I'm meeting with him during the week, so I can flag that to him as, as what's a, what's a, maybe that can be one of the questions that we can fire at him when he comes What's the Jewish understanding of the this the second? Can you remember that one? The Jewish understanding of the sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah. That'll be a good one. Did somebody else have their hand up? Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate that, obviously, very much. Can I just say that? We'll come in a second. Yeah. But you know that, um, that within Jewish culture, this is how they learnt, was somebody would get up and talk and say, this is the way. And somebody would go, actually, but you haven't seen it from the... I would love it to come to a point where, as a community, that we um, not just affirm what the speaker has said, but also question and challenge and, and add to that. I would love for me, and hopefully we're building a, a culture which is creating confidence where, where you feel empowered to um, having engaged the scripture yourself to say, I actually see that from this angle. I would love, that's my my longing because that's how we're all going to learn. That's how we're going to grow. And the, this is my, my, um, my belief that um, there are more than, there's more than one point of view concerning truth or certain truths of seeing, seeing things. And if, we see, we, have, we often have such a polarised, one-eyed view of Scripture and we don't have the confidence or the courage to maybe view it from another perspective, another angle, because we're so entrenched in, in, in our orthodoxy. And I'm not calling us to be unorthodox. What I'm calling us to do is to actually think and engage with God's word, 
because it is so rich and it is so complex. And particularly in the postmodern world in which we live, no wonder we have a generation of young people that have rejected the form of Christianity that's generally being presented to them because a one-eyed view of, of a truth just does not satisfy, will never satisfy. And so we have to kind of walk our way around truth. And, you know, I'm so excited that, you know, some of the folks in the church that I'm engaging with theologically around some of these things, we actually don't agree with, agree on. But I see that as a huge positive. I don't see that as a negative. I see that as we're part of a, a group of people that look at the scripture, analyze it a certain way, and, and none of us hopefully put a full stop after things we have a comma. It's kind of what else can we learn? There are certain things in which there are full stops and exclamation marks at, as per the Trinitarian nature of God, the deity of Christ, um, their full stop exclamation marks, you know, rabbits, ears, everything, bold. We don't, we don't question those kinds of things. We explore them, but we don't challenge the orthodoxy of them. So, sorry. Sorry, Nicole. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's great. Wonderful thought. Excellent. Paul, maybe you might want to lead us in a song. Can we sing I Love You, Lord? Because that just takes me back. Gives away my age, sorry. And uh, maybe let's just sing, let's stand and sing that song. And as we're singing, maybe this is your moment of worship to build an altar in which you say, God, I've been trying to figure this stuff out and I just need to let go. Trust you with this particular problem. Um, Or God... I just need to focus now on your mercy. In view of your mercy, I present myself as a living, you know, as a living sacrifice. Well, this is your moment in worship to um, see God as your covenant partner, somebody who, with whom you are eternally and intrinsically linked together with, and there's never going to be a disconnection. And for you to find security and strength from that place, or this might be your moment in worship to just reflect on the sacrifice of God, the, the God who gave up the greatest gift for you and for me, for, for humanity. Or this might be your moment for you to lay down something in response to the sacrifice of God. And perhaps you're here this morning and you've never formally given an invitation to Jesus to be part of your world, to be part of your life, or Jesus has been part of your life and you've kind of done the the, the Abraham thing, you've wandered from Bethel and this can be your Bethel moment where you could just come back and reconnect again and 
some, some, some form of repentance. But this is your moment of, of, of expressing your worship and your